0: Chapter 13. Of Army Life in a Black Regiment. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by FNH. Army Life in a Black Regiment by Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Chapter 13. Conclusion. My personal forebodings proved to be correct, and so were the threats of the surgeons. In May 1864 I went home invalided, was compelled to resign in October from the same cause, and never saw the first South Carolina again. Nor did anyone else see it under that appellation, for about that time its name was changed to the 33rd United States Coloured Troops, a most vague and heartless baptism, as the man in the story says. It was one of those instances of injudicious sacrifice of a spirit de corps, which were so frequent in our army. All the pride of my men was centred in "Defus south. The very words were a recognition of the loyal south as against the disloyal. To make the matter worse, it had been originally designed to apply the new numbering only to the new regiments, and so the early numbers were all taken up before the older regiments came in. The governors of states, by a special effort, saved their colored troops from this chagrin, but we found here, as more than once before, the disadvantage of having no governor to stand by us. "'It's a far cry to lock eye,' said the Highland proverb. "'We knew to our cost that it was a far cry to Washington in those days, "'unless an officer left his duty and stayed there all the time.'" In June 1864, the regiment was ordered to Foley Island, and remained there and on Coles Island till the siege of Charleston was done. It took part in the Battle of Honey Hill, and in the capture of a fort on James Island, of which Corporal Robert Vendross wrote triumphantly in a letter, when we took the pieces, we found that we recapped our own pieces that we lost on the Wiltown river, river, and, thank the Lord, did not lose but seven men out of our regiment. In February 1865, the regiment was ordered to Charleston to do provost and guard duty, in March to Savannah, in June to Hamburg and Aiken, in September to Charleston and its neighbourhood, and was finally mustered out of service, after being detained beyond its three years so great was the scarcity of troops, on the 9th of February, 1866. With dramatic fitness, this muster-out took place at Fort Wagner, above the graves of Shaw and his men. I give in the appendix the farewell address of Lieutenant Colonel Trowbridge, who commanded the regiment from the time I left it. Brevet Brigadier General W.T. Bennett, one of the 102nd United States Coloured Troops who was assigned to the command, never actually held it, being always in charge of a brigade. The officers and men are scattered far and wide. One of our captains was a member of the South Carolina Constitutional Convention, and is now State Treasurer. Three of our sergeants were in that convention, including Sergeant Prince Rivers, and he and Sergeant Henry Hayne are still members of the State Legislature. Both in that state and in Florida, the former members of the regiment are generally prospering, so far as I can hear. The increased self-respect of army life fitted them to the duties of civil life. It is not in nature that the jealousy of race should die out in this generation. But I trust they will not see the fulfilment of Corporal Simon Cram's prediction. Simon was one of the shrewdest old fellows in the regiment, and he said to me once as he was jogging out of Beaufort behind me on the Shell Road, I's going to lead the South, Cunnel. When de war is over, I's made up my mind that these years will never be civilised in my time. The only member of the regiment, whom I have seen since leaving it, is a young man, Cyrus Wiggins, who was brought off from the mainland in a dugout in broad day before the very eyes of the rebel pickets by Captain James S. Rogers of my regiment. It was one of the most daring acts I ever saw, and as it happened under my own observation, I was glad when the captain took home with him, captive of his bow and spear, to be educated under his eye in Massachusetts. Cyrus has done credit to his friends, and will be satisfied with nothing short of a college training at Howard University i have letters from the men very quaint in handwriting and spelling but he is the only one whom i have seen some time i hope to revisit those scenes and shall feel no doubt like a bewildered rip van winkle who once wore a uniform we who served with the black troops have this peculiar satisfaction that whatever dignity or sacredness the memories of the war may have to others they have more to us in that contest all the ordinary ties of patriotism were the same of course to us as to the rest, they had no motives which we had not, as they have now no memories which are not also ours. But the peculiar privilege of associating with an outcast race, of training it to fend its rights and to perform its duties, this was our especial meed. The facilitating policy of the government sometimes filled other officers with doubt and shame, until the negro had justice, they were but defending the liberty with one hand and crushing it with the other. From this inconsistency, we were free. Whatever the government did, we at least were working in the right direction. If this was not recognized on our side of the lines, we knew that it was admitted on the other. Fighting with ropes round our necks, denied the ordinary courtesies of war till we ourselves compelled then concession. We could at least turn this outlawry into a compliment. We had touched the pivot of the war. Whether this vast and dusky mass should prove the weakness of the nation or its strength, we must depend in great measure, we knew, upon our efforts. Till the blacks were armed, there was no guarantee of their freedom. It was their demeanor under arms that shamed the nation into recognizing them as men. End of chapter 13. Recording by FNH. Visit www.bookranger.co.uk.